Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we are speaking with Jose Luis Wilson. Jose is a math educator for a middle school in the Inward Washington Heights neighborhood of New York. He graduated with a bachelor's degree in computer science from Syracuse University and a master's degree in mathematics education from the City College of New York. He's also a committed writer, activist, web designer, and father. His first solo project, This is not a test, a new narrative on race, class, and the future of education, was published by Haymarket Books in the spring of 2014. He is the founder of EduColor, a coalition of teachers, parents, and other concerned citizens dedicated to the uplift of people of color in education. He has served as a board member on the Board of Directors for the Center for Teaching Quality and the President Emeritus for the Latino Alumni Network of Syracuse University. He writes regularly for Edutopia and for Progressive Magazine and has contributed to the New York Times, CNN.com, Education Week, Huffington Post, and El Diario La Prensa, New York. He has also been featured at PBS, Mashable, Idealist, Chalkbeat New York, Take Part, Mother Jones, Manhattan Times, and The Fusion. He co-authored the book, Teaching 2030, What We Must Do for Our Students and Public Schools Now and in the Future, with Dr. Barnett Berry and 11 other accomplished teachers. He has also been profiled in two other books, Teacherpreneurs and Teaching with Heart. He was named as one of Good Inc.'s Good 100 in 2013 of Leaders Changing Their Worlds and an Aspen Idea Scholar in 2013. He has also spoken at TEDx NYED, Education Writers Association Annual Conference, Netroots Nation, the U.S. Department of Education, and the Save Our Schools March. His blog, thejosevilson.com was named one of the top 25 education blogs by Scholastic, Education World, and University of Southern California Rosier School of Education's Teacher 100. He was also recently inducted into the Math for America Master Fellowship, Cohort 2014. So welcome, Jose Luis Wilson. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. We're so happy to have you on our podcast. And as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? I believe I am. Yes, you are. So, Jose, can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now? Well, as of now, I'm still a full-time teacher. I teach students seventh and eighth grade math. And I've been doing that for about 13 plus years. Mm. I've had the fortune of doing so from Washington Heights inward area. And so I teach predominantly 
Latino and black kids. Of course, there's always a sprinkling of other types of students, but generally they're what folks would consider high poverty, yada, yada. It's been a blessing. You know, one of the things I've been very blessed with is like the idea that I need to be able to use whatever gifts possible that I've been given. And one of those gifts for me has been writing. And so in the midst of trying to become a better teacher, I also did a lot of writing. And through this thing I was journaling in public, I actually started saying, you know what, this could actually be a thing where I write, write, not just like write for myself. <laughs> right, it's official. Yeah. So in that capacity, I've been known as, I guess, a thought leader, if you will, or even as a provocateur that has come up a lot. Mm -hmm. Just someone who's trying to push the boundaries of what it means to be a teacher, especially given the power dynamics that often occur in the education space, where teachers are not given a platform to discuss issues at the same level that policymakers, politicians, hedge fund managers, and other types of folks get without much credential. So that's something that I've been very insistent on, and I'm blessed to continue the message of teacher leadership, but also just straight up advocacy for the folks who are on the ground, whether you're a student, parent, teacher, principal, someone who's doing the work. I've been in that space and mm -hmm. pushing folks to better. So, Jose, I was interviewing Peggy Brookins, and she highly recommended you. And I looked at your website, and it's oozing with passion. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's really cool. I love how you're really pouring into what you do. So tell us about your passion. Well, I think at this juncture, you know, my passion is very much about that agency and advocacy. And mm -hmm. it's easy to say yes to kids, but then what specifically about them? Is it that I want to mold them into a facsimile of myself or do I want them to be the best version of themselves? And nine out of 10 times, I love it for them to be the latter where they themselves are able to better discuss their own issues, bring that to the fore, or even just be folks who want to do better for themselves as far as the society is concerned and, you know, be aware of what's going on around them along with having folks who actually love and care for them regardless of what path they choose. So those are things I've been very passionate about and, you know, being able to communicate and write about that and provoke people to think deeper about what's happening in education. Those are things that really matter a lot to me. I'm very fortunate in that I get to express the way I feel because I've already developed a platform for doing so. Not that I've been given any permission, but <laughs> you know how that goes already. Right, but right. Uh, yeah, it's one of those things where I needed to get out there and I needed to elevate other teachers to do a better job, especially for our most marginalized students. Hmm. If our listeners wanted to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? The best way right now would be either through my Twitter at the JLV, or they can just go to my website at thejosevilson.com. And on the website, there's a ton of information, including blogs, things that I've written, speeches that I've given, any number of things that I've done. So mm. they can feel free to go to the website. But Twitter is usually pretty good for me. Instagram has been very good for me as well. All these are under my name. So mm -hmm. you can feel free to look me up through um, any of those pieces, Facebook as well. So you consider yourself a teacher leader. How would you describe your leadership style? 
generally, I try to lead by example. That mm-hmm. sounds rather cliche, but one of the things that I do try to do is I'm very thoughtful about the ways that I respond to people and mm-hmm. how I want to get my message across. There's been a conversation lately, for example, about what it means to be woke, which, as you know, means mm-hmm. to be conscious of societal issues and to do it from a very, I guess, ethnic perspective or black perspective, if you will, and mm-hmm. build up from there. I think there's, at some point, we have to get people to actually build up on it. I mean, the idea of organizing people so that you meet them where they are and then try to build them up is the very definition of teaching. And so one of the things that I think about when it comes to being able to organize people and to teach is to say, well, you know, maybe this is an invitation for you to build up on the things that you know or an invitation for you to strike down the things that, you know, may be hateful about you or that may be, frankly, racist or things that, you know, don't necessarily help people unify across racial, gender, class, disability lines, religious lines, like all those things matter a lot. And so if we're able to be more conscious of one another, then it's easier for us than to discuss these harder issues because we're being honest with ourselves and there is nobody that's exempt from that sort of reflection. So with that too, I'm also humble in the leadership. Like I understand that even if I'm speaking very passionately and forcefully about an issue, I also try to at the very least understand where people are coming from, even if I completely disagree with it. Those are elements that matter because then I'm able to say, okay, let me build up on the things that you're thinking. Let me try to deconstruct and parse what's going on with you. And of course, I can also do that through my own perspective saying, hey, like these are things that I'm still learning and this is the sort of thing that I think everybody else can do. Jose, I really appreciate you taking the time to really pour into us and sharing your perspective on things. Now, our podcast focuses on leadership, and I believe everything rises and falls on leadership, like John Maxwell says, and I also believe that leadership is about influence. And there are some very important skills there. Do you think it's important for students to be taught leadership? Absolutely. And we have to find ways to discuss leadership Mm-hmm. That isn't always top down. I know mm-hmm. that you've probably seen the graphic where you have a boss versus a leader. I've been very insistent with a lot of different people that I work with mm-hmm. that I don't want to work from in front. I don't want to work from behind. Like I want to work side by side with people. Mm-hmm. And that is to say that I believe all of us have enough light that can shine upon us. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at leadership, I really think about it in terms of allowing ourselves to be the best selves possible and then when the moment arises, allowing ourselves to flourish in that moment. That's what leadership looks like to me. And oftentimes people mistake leadership for modeling yourself based on a caricature of a person who came from a history book somewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's not necessarily leadership because how do you then build up people to be with you? Leadership for me is also not saying like, I'm just going to be quiet on the moments of discomfort. I'm just going to try to mediate and be nice wherever I can. It really does mean you have to be able to like dig through the murk and Mm -hmm. the mud and the grease because that's where the complication begins. Like leadership is when you look at imperfect situations and you try to make the most human decision possible based on the things that are presented to you. And so oftentimes people are afraid to be leaders in that space because it may cut down on different things. They may not get the speaking opportunities. They may not get the 
monies that come along with. They may not get to be part of workshops because people don't want the controversy, right? But right. it is the folks who are in that controversial space that make the most difference in mm -hmm. terms of the things that they're doing in their lives. And you know, they don't necessarily have to have like 100,000 followers or other nonsense. Oftentimes, the folks who have way less than that are the ones who are more influential because they're pushing conversations, they're engaging with people, they're working with others. And even if they're not necessarily on the streets protesting, they could be influencing thought in other ways. And mm -hmm. those are things that I think really matter when it comes to leadership. How do we get into that controversy, that murk? Like, what, what does it look like for us to do that? Right. And like what you said, not just leading in front, but also leading oneself well, you know, which to me, bringing this to education is really key, because if a student learns, if we learn to lead ourselves well, then there's a lot of other possibilities. Sure. Um, so this is my passion, the leadership lane. And I'm so excited about bringing that to schools and bringing that to the ears of students and teachers and leaders. So that's really cool. Now, can you tell us which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? <laughs> oh, gosh, that's tough. So Notorious B.I.G. once said in the song, Sky's the Limit, stay far from timid. Only make moves when your heart's in it. Hmm. I live the phrase, sky's the limit. That's a good one. Right? Yes, it is. <laughs> it is. I'm glad that came up because I'm weird about quotes, but I've also <laughs> noticed like every so often, like I start saying things and I'm like, oh, wow. Like, yeah. You know, not to mention, of course, you know, anything off the Hamilton soundtrack, I need to incorporate every so often. But that's mm -hmm. a good quote for me, the biggie one. I find that we don't often get a chance to lead with our gut or lead with the things that we're feeling, especially those of us who are adults, because we've learned how to build up filters around mm -hmm. ourselves. We've learned how to mask ourselves too. But what often happens is that the more layers and masks that we build up, the farther away we get from actually tapping into the energies that are around us. And so I'm finding that I have to strip a lot of those layers which makes me more vulnerable, but it also makes me more in touch with the things that are happening around me. And this applies, of course, to school, too, because, for example, I did not have a very good week this week with my class. And, you know, I won't talk too much about all that because school things are school things. Mm -hmm. I will say, though, that the things that were happening outside of my classroom were affecting that which was happening inside my classroom. Mm -hmm. And so I was getting farther and farther away. And when I recognized that last night, I said, let me just openly reflect upon it. And of course, I put it on my Twitter. I put a little bit on my Instagram, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, I said, you know what? I'm going to try a different strategy and see if I come out with the same energy. And today, for whatever reason, it felt so much better from having done that, from having reflected mm -hmm. upon my own energy and how I wasn't doing that which was natural to me. Like, you know, I'm usually a very patient guy. I hadn't been that patient this week. I mm -hmm. usually listen a lot. And I wasn't listening a lot this week because I was too wrapped up in my own thoughts. And then today I just said, you know what, let me just go back to that element, forget you know, what's going on around me and see what happens. And sure enough, things came out better today just from the fact that I projected that energy. So that matters a lot. And so mm -hmm. keeping your heart open to these things matters a lot. And mm -hmm. we have to be thoughtful about all that. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate your authenticity. And what I know is that when you're vulnerable, it ignites or inspires courage. 
So yes. that's probably the energy that you were feeling, which is really cool. And I appreciate that vulnerability. It's the scariest thing sometimes, isn't it? Absolutely. It's scary. Especially to put it on Twitter or Facebook or even in a podcast. Well, and I'll say this too, like, you know, people talk about brands, you know, mm -hmm. and all that other stuff. What people know of me is that I do my best writing when I'm at my most vulnerable, when I take on the things that are happening around me. Mm -hmm. And then I try to show people through the words that I'm writing, through the pictures that I'm taking, what I'm feeling versus trying to go directly and saying, this is what's wrong with education. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a very easy stance to take but it's much harder to say wow i feel like i'm complicit in this in my everyday actions and or these are the things that i try to do to remedy it mm -hmm. and you know here's an area where i think in education we're lacking is teaching you know social emotional skills and learning to be expressive because we have so many barriers and we have so many walls so your being an example of that really opens up the possibilities for our students. Now, Jose, what type of leader are you inspired by and why? Wow. I have multiple folks who I believe are really good leaders. I think about the women of Black Lives Matter, for example, mm -hmm. uh, folks who just said we have work to do. And they did it from a place of authenticity and vulnerability and mm -hmm. knowing full well that there's never been anything like a thing where you just had folks straight up saying, everybody has a chance to be a leader. Everybody has a chance to do this work. Everybody has a chance to, you know, be in front and do these things. That's leadership to me. Right. I think about folks like Chris Lehman, the principal of Science Leadership Academy out of Philadelphia. I'm not just a friend, but somebody who I consider a real thoughtful person about the ways that school operates. And I'm so blessed. So many other folks, like folks like Rafranz Davis. Mm -hmm. When I think about the ways that she leads, she's able to look at people who are in higher positions and say, if you want me, you need to go get these other people as well. And I'm going to make sure that they too get fed. So she brings That's people along with her. And not just brings people along, but then makes it so that the policies also follow up with that which she's doing, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not enough for her to say, well, I got me and my friends here. Right. She's also helped make it accommodating for anybody who she doesn't know, who she still feels deserves a chance in the things that she's doing. So that's a really important voice to have. And, you know, there's a ton of other people doing that sort of work, too. But I think she's been a model for me and the ways that I want to approach things. Awesome. Now, what's the best advice you've ever received? As far as what? It can be leadership. It can be personal. Anything you want to share with us. You know, mm -hmm. I sampled an interview from, I think this was Maya Angelou sometime before she passed. It was in the New York Times. I'm not going to use the exact words that she used because, you know, this is a different program. But <laughs> <laughs> I will say, though, that she liked to make a difference between modesty versus humility. Modesty is this idea that, you know, you have taken your gifts for granted and you keep talking down upon them. So you keep saying, oh, I'm not that good at this. I'm not that good at that. And what she offers is that if you're humble, then you fully understand the power that you've been given and you're going to use it to great effect. And you understand that this gift is a responsibility. Yes. And so 
as you're working through whatever it is you're working through, you then say, you know, this is a really good gift that I have and I'm very blessed to have it and I'll keep working on whatever it is that I'm doing so that I can be a better person, I can be a better teacher, I can be a better educator, etc. This idea that we always have to be modest is something that is so thorough in education, right? Like it happens all the time, especially for educators, especially when we're in spaces that aren't accommodating to us. But when I walk in with humility, I fully understand that when I'm walking into a space where I don't have the power, I then have to help reorganize the power dynamic in that room just by my voice, right? Or just by my presence or the things that I'm asking and prompting. Um, And then when I do that, I then say, wow, that means I'm not just doing it for myself, I'm doing it for every single body who comes after me in the seat, um, mm-hmm. even if I don't get invited back. And sometimes that happens, but taking that risk is worth it, isn't it? Yes. And, you know, I'm humbled by all that because if I'm not invited back, that means I spark something, right? Because I know what I'm bringing. I'm going to come with something all the way through. That's mm-hmm. why you had me there. So for me, being humble about the things that I'm doing means... Let me step into the space and I'm going to let the gift work and it's going to work through me. And I could say, yes, I built up that gift. You're right. And it's still the gift and whatever that gift may be. And people call it a whole lot of different things. It could be a blessing. I'm Catholic. So, yes, I'll mm-hmm. call it a blessing. Different religions call it different things. But whatever that may be, we have to be able to maximize it and constantly build upon it and understand that maybe that gift didn't necessarily come from us, but it's something that we ought to use and be responsible for. I love how you encountered humility and embrace humility. I didn't encounter it in in such a nice way. I pray. So I pray a lot for wisdom. And as you know, wisdom and humility are strongly connected. So when I pray for wisdom, I get humbled and then I'm open to learning so much. So your spot on humility is certainly a place where we can receive a lot and we can give a lot. And, you know, when we start getting arrogant, that's when you start really using that which you are gifted with. Because people will be like, oh, that person is gifted. But unfortunately, you know, because they're so arrogant about it, nobody wants them around. Right, um, right. That's something else, too. That's the flip side to this modesty piece where, you know, you're being abusive with your gifts. You're not really being respectful right. of that which you've been given. Right. And so, Jose, as someone who pulls people together, what does it mean to have a good team And how do you build or sustain one? Anytime I've had a good team around me, I have always thought to myself, are they better than me? And at any given point that I think I am so much better than that team, that means I don't have a good team around me. That's the thinking. And the person could be much younger than me. They could be of a different culture, a different understanding of social issues, whatever that may be. Whoever is going to be on my team ought to be doing something better than me because I don't need to be the smartest person in that room, right? I don't need to be the smartest person in that team. In fact, I would prefer I not be. I just have a certain gift that I'm going to be contributing and everybody else has their different gifts. So when I look at a good team, it's usually a set of folks who they have different abilities And then they're able to then do something effectively because they've built up 
their talents together and complemented one another. There doesn't need to be the one person who can do everything because that doesn't really help out either, right? We've mm-hmm. all been in that situation where, oh, wow, I got to do everything in this group, like for real. Right. And Yeah, that's never good. That modesty you talked about, that passive aggressiveness. Or like you get that situation, you're like... Wow, don't you really want to like do something with your life? I say, like, okay, at this point, wow, really? I would rather be in a situation where it's like, you know, I actually need help in this. Can somebody please help? And then, look, I really don't know how to do this. Can somebody teach me? Oh, but you're so good at everything else. It's like, yeah, but I'm not that good at this. And I've seen that on a number of occasions with a number of different people. So it's important for mm-hmm. us to be on that same playing field for it to be a team. Okay. Now, can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life? Gosh, you know, teaching is a challenge. <laughs> I would say that the mandates that are constantly thrown at us, that's a challenge, especially when they don't meet the students where they are. There are so many schools of thought when it comes to education. And unfortunately, too many of them compete with one another. So we're not able then to come to compromise or at the very least an understanding of how we're going to approach said schooling. So, for instance, there are folks who believe in having everything look the same and be the same because they believe it's an equity issue. So you don't want any students to feel like they've been left behind because they don't have certain elements in one classroom versus another, right? Mm -hmm. Um, At the same time, there's two things that often happen with that. One is that you get a situation I would almost liken to fascism where everybody has to be exactly the same and you start stripping individuality and sense of ownership. If people came together, for example, to say, you know, we need to all do this together, that's one thing. But when it starts being mandated, then that Mm. takes the power away from the people who need to work through whatever it is the most, right? Mm -hmm. So. That's the first big challenge. And the second part about trying to make everything the same is that the kids often see what happens when you make everything the same. And then they, too, start replicating behaviors that aren't necessarily part of them. So if you have kids, for example, in all roles and aisles and tell them all that they all have to do this at the same exact time, then they all start to believe that this is the way that the world works. Right. Um, and that's how you're successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly right. And where we have evidence to the contrary, right, where we actually want people to think outside this proverbial box, people keep saying, well, you know, school isn't real life. I would suggest that, what are we, are we not alive? Our kids are alive in this moment, so this is real for them. Like, right. This is really happening. And we're not engaging kids in a real context. I fully respect structure and discipline, but I also understand, too, that within that, We have to give a sense of individuality. And if we don't bestow that upon our adults, then you can only imagine what's happening with the kids. Right. And school's a perfect opportunity to experience so much to help us. Hey, leaders, if you haven't downloaded your copy of the Master Leadership Journal, go to masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ to get instant access and begin growing your leadership with questions that have been curated by top level leaders. I've also included some cool extras for you at masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ. Now, Jose, can you tell us about one of your greatest successes? Besides being a father to a five-year-old, a beautiful boy. Oh, uh, yay. What's his name? Alejandro. Alejandro. I have a boy, too. Me and my lady, Luz, are blessed 
I haven't done anything better than that, mind you. I know Peggy Brookins was part of your podcast, but yeah. even National Board wasn't better than this. Um, <laughs> and I'm in agreement. I have a son and he's my joy, even though he's a teenager now. I have middle schoolers, so yeah. we know what that's about already. You know, I'm often reluctant to say this sort of thing, but writing a book and having it go through a publisher was a really big deal for me. I say um, congratulations. Thank you. I mean, it came out a couple of years ago, but... Mm-hmm. People are still reading it in college courses. They're still picking it up on their own. They want to go find out what it was about. And I say this for a couple reasons. One, because people kept saying that it shouldn't even be published. There were obviously dissenters from inside the school, but also people who felt like we don't know how to publicize an education-related book, especially one that was both biographical and topical in nature. So, mm-hmm. you know, you look at this is not a test. It started from blogging, right? Mm-hmm. But it came from this idea that our personal stories matter and they matter so much that this is why we came into teaching to begin with. And so you need to know all that in order for you to understand why it is that I have the positions I do about schooling as a whole. So I've been blessed because so many people have picked it up. Uh, you know, it's sold thousands of copies at this juncture. And not only that, but I've probably done a pretty good job of keeping a lot of people in the classroom. In fact, there's been at least a good four or five people who said, you know, Jose, I was going to leave the classroom, but I'm going to stay because I read this book. And or, wow, I've been out of the classroom for so long that I forgot what it's like to be in it. And your book said, wow, no, you need to be back in that classroom doing Mm -hmm. the work. So that says everything and then some to me. It's been a blessing. Well, you know, you connect with teachers on a different level. I read an excerpt from it, and it's funny because I taught 6th, 7th, and 8th graders with emotional issues. And that was my initiation into special ed. And I have to tell you, I read about your responses to them, and I started laughing because it brought me back. I just connected with it. So I'm assuming that that's what teachers are feeling as well, that strong connection. I'm not in this alone. And other people have my same passion and other people aren't quitting. So let's stay the course. Let's make a difference. That is correct. Teacher retention is a really big deal. And even if I contributed a small percentage, that's really good for me. I'm still so happy about that. Right. And I guess, you know, part of what I'm doing, too, is for retention because not just teacher retention, but leadership. Because like you said, there's a lot of top down and that's not true leadership. True leadership is being able to be approachable. And I encountered so many situations where leadership wasn't that. And most people go into leadership wanting to make a difference. And for some reason, we get sucked up in this system So this is being the change that I wish to see in the world by asking people like you, bringing people to a conversation where we can talk about what good leadership looks like, Jose, so that, you know, down the road, we can vote well. Yes. (laughs) I see what you're doing there. I'll also (laughs) say, too, that the things that matter between elections also matters too, right? Like I'm pushing a lot of people to be more thoughtful because one of the things that I'm noticing is that we can't wait anymore. What I've been Mm -hmm. very encouraged by is that the people in America, not all, but enough of us are making a thoughtful and conscientious decision to discuss our politics on a daily basis and then challenge everyone 
to move forward mm-hmm. in the work that we need to do. It's very important for us to do that because the demographics that were two centuries ago, last century, even 50 years ago, are not so today. And so we keep moving forward to build a better society, and we do so thoughtfully. And if we can build a country that can do that sort of work, then our education systems only stand to gain from us making better decisions, not just through our actions every four years, but every day that we're doing this work. So that that matters a lot. Absolutely. Now, someone comes in the building, they're brand new, and they get discouraged. What's some advice you would give them? I would say the first thing is, you know, it's easy to be discouraged because Mm -hmm. we as individuals often feel like we have to fight against a much larger system around us. Decisions that aren't necessarily ours, things that we can't often control, even just things like weather and Mm -hmm. politics get in the way of us feeling like we are our best selves. But to not get discouraged often means digging deeper into the conversations, digging deeper into the people, digging deeper into the folks who we have to serve on a daily basis. And that's the children. So Mm -hmm. being with students, you know, observing how they work. You know, when I'm having a bad day, one of the things that often comforts me is actually being in a classroom on an off period. And the reason why that comforts me is twofold. One, I start getting new ideas about how kids may work in a different way. And of course, the colleagues who I have are very receptive to me visiting because they know I'm soaking up ideas, but also too, because, you know, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just not having a great day. And maybe there's an alternative way of looking at things and just isolating myself doesn't help me reconnect with the kids who I need to serve. Mm -hmm. So like I'll disconnect for a while, but if I feel like I need to go reconnect, then I'll go do that. And so for any leader to come in and say, I'm going to disconnect myself from everybody, that's already going to be a discouragement. That's already a demerit for you. Versus Mm -hmm. if you come in and say, you know what, I'm going to dig deeper because I know how much work we need to do. That's where the work actually happens. So this leader, you would encourage them to be intentional because you can be discouraged. And if you're not intentional and if you don't have people like an inner circle to talk to, to help you flesh through things, then it can be you're going down a rabbit hole and and you need help. You need to reach out and get help. Yes. And then with that intentionality, you're, again, going right into the people Mm -hmm. to get deeper, see how far you can go. Because oftentimes we lose ourselves when we Mm -hmm. hang out by ourselves. Yeah. All right. So many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you? And what are you learning now? I think lifelong learning, I know that's been a hot topic as of late. I would suggest that if we're not constantly engaging in the thought process of learning, then we have a harder time trying to teach others. You know, the process of learning suggests that once we've accumulated this information and really brought it into ourselves, then we're going to be able to then take it and pass it along to someone else. The minute that we say to ourselves, we have this knowledge, but we're not going to disseminate it, then we've stopped teaching. We've also stopped leading. There are people who believe that when it comes to math, math is completely devoid of conversations around race, class, gender, disability, religion, etc. Unfortunately, what often happens is that our pedagogies don't often reflect that. Our pedagogies are 
these days very much reflective of the people who make all the decisions, the folks who have created all the standards, the folks who they say we need to aspire to succeed. They're the ones that aspire for success. Like we got to replicate the way that they do things. All the while, we could be doing a better job of creating more communal definitions of how we approach mathematics pedagogy, how we approach topics. I'll give a simple example. Like Mm -hmm. you could say, Oh, let's talk about barns and hay and all that other stuff. That was very applicable for a lot of different people across the country. That is not often applicable to my students here in Washington Heights because not many of them have been to a farm, if at all. Mm -hmm. But if I could bring it to something else that they have seen, and it doesn't have to be negative either. It could be something real cool. They can then dig deeper into the messages that math is trying to deliver to them. But we don't often get that sense from people because it's very much like this is the way things have always been done. The ways that things have always been done have led to some of the opportunity gaps that we keep seeing. Perhaps we need to think more deeply about how we're working. Right. And now with technology, how has technology contributed to that? Like, you know, you can't do things the way they've always been done. Technology has shifted a lot. I think there's two prevailing thoughts I have about technology right now. I think one, it is definitely a great vehicle for getting so much more information into people's hands than ever before and has become way less expensive as a result. I think it's also helped people connect across different platforms and it's actually created more teachers for so many of our kids. You know how many people that you know look up right. YouTube videos and all this other stuff. It's given people a lot more information and different ways to look at information. At the same time, it's also made it difficult to discern that which is true from that which is false. Right. And so we are encouraged then to work at a higher plane than just the basic facts. We can no longer rely on saying, you know, these are the facts of what's happening in front of us. We have to teach children discernment, critical thinking skills, the ability to communicate well, Mm -hmm. and who ought we trust when it comes to the information that's given. And that goes across all subject area. Technology these days has made it real simple for us to engage more deeply because we can say, oh, well, you have a calculator in your hand, go use it. And let us talk about the actual ideas. Mm -hmm. But then within that, then it also means yeah, you got to then discuss the ideas and discuss them more thoroughly because you have the technology in your hand. Right. Love it. Okay. Now, you've answered this in many ways, but maybe you have something else you want to add. If there were something you could change in education in the U.S., what would that be? I think I would try to change the policy mindset of our country. I think we have to find a way to discuss not just funding, but also just the ways that resources are allocated to all of our children. I would want it to be from a viewpoint of the most marginalized children. So whoever we believe is, quote unquote, at the bottom of the achievement gap, we would work to create schools that engage them and engage their voices and their parents' voices and the way that school can be more receptive to the ways that so many of our students, whether they be African-American, whether they be English as a new language students, whether they be our Native American students who get way overlooked too often, even our Asian-American students who don't fall within the quote-unquote minor minority myth, right? Even the ones who quote-unquote do. Everybody stands to get served better if we work from the lens of our most marginalized students. Our policy these days is still geared 
towards making sure that a certain percentage of children that are already on the path towards success to let them continue succeeding. And then we have a separate and unequal education system for pretty much everybody else. Mm -hmm. Even those who folks consider poor white, they get a different educational system. But our country has already suggested, well, you know, as long as you're white, you're going to be okay which, of course, is not okay because you're still underserving them as well, mm. especially in places where businesses are closing, houses are getting foreclosed. You know, it's happening all across our country. And yet our education system is not being reflective of how much more needy certain kids are than another. So that's where the issue of racial and social equity comes in. We need to be more thoughtful about what it means to say the word equity and then how do we apply it as a policy principle. Thank you so much for that. Jose, what have you read that our listeners should read and why? Okay, that's a loaded one. Now I'm going to pull out my resources. Okay, for one, I would most definitely read Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson. I think it speaks a lot to the children who are most marginalized. I would definitely read that book, number one. Number two... I would go with Other People's Children by Lisa Delpit because of the way that she's able to do research from a perspective that is not hers Mm -hmm. and then still apply it to the grand scope of education. Anything by Lisa Delpit is aces to me. So even Multiplication is for White People is a really good read if you want to get more specific. But Mm -hmm. that book is really critical. I would read The Big Test by Nicholas Lehman. It gives a really thorough understanding for folks who aren't quite aware of why so many people are rebelling against the SAT. And then, of course, the SAT being the most popular standardized test that there is in our country. And then here are some lessons that we could learn about how people are rebelling against the SAT to then discuss what standardized testing looks like for every single child across all subject grades and areas. Mm -hmm. So those are just three that I'm thinking of. Of course, I would highly recommend educolor.org, the website. Our resources are highly vetted by multiple educators from across the country. We have books there, articles there, things that people should be reading. But those three have formed my thinking on education policy and about thoughts on leadership. Oh, of course, the last one. I have to include this. The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Mm-hmm. It was such a good read. It's for all of us as educators, for us to be more thoughtful about our students who are, quote unquote, in special education. It really made me think that all of our children deserve an IEP, an individual educational program, right? The ways that our kids think, we all think so differently about the ways that we're doing things, but they are no less valuable in the work that we're doing. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. You're a teacher, you're a leader, you're a writer, you're a blogger, you're a speaker, you do a lot, and you're a parent. Now, you have a lot of responsibilities. What do you do on a daily basis to set your mind? For one, the night before, I'm usually drinking some sort of tea with honey and apple cider vinegar organic, of course. So that's usually a pretty good start, believe it or not. And that lets me sleep through the night. I wake up at about 5.30. I usually just try to get my mind set on what I'm going to be doing for the day. It's so funny too. I don't wake up at 5.30 on the weekends. I just happen to do it on the weekdays, even when the alarm doesn't go off. Oh, okay. So your body's rhythm is already naturally set. Yes. It's set towards teaching. It's Mm -hmm. weird. And in the summer, I got to shake that all off. (laughs) 
in the mornings, you know, when I'm on the train, I'm usually listening to some sort of music. And then I'm also trying to read at the same time. There's a couple of times, too, where I'll do some meditation for about 10 minutes, too. I have a program called Headspace that helps me meditate. That's always really cool. I get to school usually about 45 minutes before the bell rings because I'm supposed to be here at 8 o'clock. I get here at around 7.15. And it's not even like to lesson plan, really. It's just to get my mind set on mm-hmm. what I'm going to be doing for the day. I've taken on this thing, too, and I owe all thanks to Luz for this. She's a phenomenal educator, and also we live together, and she's my partner in, okay. in life and all that. She's going to push me a little bit. I've been planning throughout. Like I don't just plan for the day. Like I'll plan for the week. I actually have a planner this year, which I didn't have for the last 12 years. I've been going pretty much day by day. Nowadays, mm-hmm. I straight up like plan for the week. And that's taking a whole big load off in terms of my thinking. It's giving me some time to just be myself. And of course, it is a teaching thing. And, you know, I try to use my prep effectively. I'll go to visit classrooms or I'll do paperwork, etc. My after school is also pretty much like that. When I get home, though, I try to limit how much time I do with anything else besides being with my family. I eat dinner and then sometime around eight o'clock is when I start thinking, okay, am I going to write today? Am I going to do social media today? Or am I just going to do work today? And this year, three out of five times I'm doing some sort of work. But those other two or five days, I'm doing social media of some nature, like I'm talking about different things on, on Twitter. I may bring things, things up on Facebook. I'm usually going to write a blog or two. I used to go three to four blogs a week. Mm-hmm. But after my son was born, that kind of started coming down a little bit. But <laughs> Right, because of the balance. I mean, so many times we work really long hours. And yes, so balance yes. is extremely important. Very. All right. So, Jose, if you were to go back in time, What advice would you give the younger you about leadership? I would tell the younger Jose, take your time. Be thoughtful about how you're going to approach this. I think so many of my misgivings about leadership is that as long as you have good people in the room, everything's going to be fine. And for the most part, that's worked. But for the couple of times that hasn't worked, it's usually because I wasn't all the way listening to the things that were happening around me or I wasn't in tune to what was going on around me. And so I would tell myself to just take my time because I don't necessarily need to have everything done. Maybe I have to be just thoughtful about how I approach every single step, who I need to be talking to, what chances and opportunities I do take versus which ones I don't. I've been pretty good about that, too. It's easy for us in education to be taken for granted. It's easy for us to be that person that's going to do this work, let's say, for free. And people will take advantage because Mm -hmm. they know. Or you'll do it for exposure. Exposure doesn't pay the bills. (laughs) And and it's not to say that everything that I do is for the money, but it is to say that it is important for people to be respectful of our time. So those are things that I've always had to wrestle with. And maybe I would have been a little bit more judicious about how my time was spent. Hmm. Okay, great. Now, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I would say that we're at a moment in time when, because things are so complicated, that's exactly when leadership shines. Hmm. I mentioned earlier about 
going in the muck, in the dirt, and do the things that are happening. Because our times are so murky, I think it is so critical then for us to engage even deeper because educators are already given a platform. We get to have dozens of young, impressionable folks in front of us, and we get to shape their present, and frankly, we get to shape their future in ways. So if we don't use our platform in a way that allows them to flourish, then we perhaps have not done the best job possible. These are the times when educators need to put their feet into the ground and plant them firmly in the work that we need to do as educators because it is so murky, because it is so complicated and imperfect. And a lot of it is hurtful. A lot of it is tough. And yet, whenever we get away from our most human selves, when we decide that we're going to be even more hurtful, we're going to double down on being hateful and or when we decide we're going to ignore it or we're going Mm -hmm. to walk away from what's complicated then that's when we really start not being our truest selves. And our kids see that. If, however, we find ways to rally folks around, we get to organize them, we really get to talk to them and, you know, be with the people. That's when we are at our best selves. And it's not that we necessarily need to be in front, but we ought to find ways in which we can engage as leaders, as people who are doing this work. So those are just some thoughts. Because, you know, education, unfortunately, we're a little bit on the side of being super cautious instead of being super thoughtful about how we're going to approach this work. Wonderful. So, Jose, I want to thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners. It's been great. Thank you for having me. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.